Hi there. My name is Kyle Jackson. You're with Nada Grande Outdoors. A little bit about me. I uh, grew up on a ranch in northeast New Mexico and uh, did some hunting and fishing when I was a kid and then went off to college, got an associate's degree in agronomy, bachelor's degree in ag science, business technology with a minor in animal science, and then went on to get my master's degree in range science. Uh, Currently a sergeant with the New Mexico Department of Game and Fish, been with them for about 10 years. With me is my brother-in-law, Rodney Wood. Yes, and welcome to Nada Grande Outdoors. Uh, I'm Rodney Wood. I am a Christian, a husband, a father of four, an American, a New Mexican, and a hunter. Uh, don't have quite the education that my brother-in-law Kyle does. Do have a little bit of college, and I am a... Uh, work for one of the local co-ops and we are here to introduce you to our new venture Nada Grande Outdoors. Yeah so we're kind of exploring this uh, journey uh, trying to do probably a few podcasts some videos and uh, bring you some hunting uh, through Nada Grande Outdoors to start with. A um, little bit about what we want to do. Uh, Rodney, this is a little bit of your brainchild, so um, where are we at? Why, did, why are we here? Well, uh, it, pretty much my wife's brainchild. She's been after me to do this for a while because uh, this is our passion. This is what we love to do. We love to hunt. Uh, we love to camp. Um, and we want to share that with the people. We are not professionals. Uh, we're weekenders for the most part, and we have a probably not a very um, completely unique style, but it is kind of a style that's of our own. You know, the the canvas and cast iron is what I like to call it. Uh, we're not camper people, but we are not um, the hardcore old school camper type people either campers we're somewhere in there in the middle yeah we kind of fill uh i i look at it as us filling a a niche uh you know you have those who have campers and that's all well and good for them and then you have those who are the old school and they do the hardcore rendezvous and it's all the old uh, equipment and then you have glamping, and we're really kind of none of those. We're just common, everyday, ordinary guys doing common, every ordinary day stuff. Absolutely. We, we do like to work hard in our camping life. We like to hunt hard in our hunting life. Um, those are our two unique things. I think we put more miles under our feet than we do under a four-wheeler, that's for certain. That's for certain. Uh, which is not common in today's day and age but but that's all right you know people that want to drive around riding their four-wheelers can scare the deer to us i'm happy well i'm not terribly happy because <laughs> there's nothing worse than being out in the woods and having to walk, walk 10 miles and then hear crap but that's okay um a little bit about our perspective is you know that we like to do things um that most, or I'm not going to say most other people don't do, but we like to do things um, our way. Our way. And, you know, we work hard at it, but uh, 
it tends to give us that rewarding satisfaction of a job well done. And I think we both kind of grew up that way. Uh, and that's kind of what defines us is you do something good and to the best of your ability and the satisfaction that comes from that, nobody can take from you. And I, and I think we camp and we hunt that way too. Exactly. That's, that's the exact way we do it. And every time we do it, we get just a little bit better. You know, we, we find one more trick, one more hack, uh, for you Pinteresters out there that tops the last time. Well, and I think if you're not getting better, um, you're going backwards. You're going backwards. Yeah. You know, there's, you should always be trying to hone your skills and, and improve the way that you do things in in all walks of life in everything that you do. Absolutely. And so, we're we want to make very clear to begin with as we're hoping to do several uh, or a series of these podcasts and some videos and things we want to make very very clear that we're not saying our way is the right way we're saying this is kind of the way we do it and we feel like we're uh, probably in in the mix of the everyday common guy out there so hopefully we can provide some tips, tricks, and some idea of, of something that you can do. Um, if you do a different, do it a different way, that's okay. That's all right. Absolutely. Um, we have a buddy that we hunt with, Deedon, and he goes to Texas a lot and hunts. And, uh, when he does use that term loosely, very loosely. I use, I use that term very loosely. He goes to Texas and he harvests animals, harvests animals by leaning to, to the, the right, right. <laughs> out of a blind but th- that's okay if, if that's the way that you want to do it that's okay we're just bringing you uh, probably a little bit more of a, a perspective of how we hunt in New Mexico that's right yeah you do you we'll do us we're going to share with you um, some of our traits, some of our ways of doing things, and hopefully you'll enjoy it. Absolutely. Um, so, Rodney, how, how are we going to start this out? You know, we, we're going to do some uh, podcasts about uh, our hunting uh, experiences and plans for our hunts, but how do you want to start this out? So we're going to start this out today. We're going to cover a few things. Um, we're going to cover how the draw works, um, the information on the draw, how the Department of Game and Fish works, where we get our information from. Uh, those are some of the things that we're going to talk about today. What I want to start with, though, is from our perspective, again, uh, something that I feel very strongly about. We're going to start with conspiracy theories. Uh, I don't, uh, you know, I'm a member of a lot of different um, Facebook groups that are New Mexico hunting related. Yeah. And the conspiracy theories on a lot of these uh, forums uh, and groups about the Department of Game and Fish is this and the Department of Game and Fish is that and they're just out to get our money and I want to debunk a few of those before we even get into it, because it's just something that I don't even want to talk about in the future, so let's just get it out of the way, get it over with, and move on. Well, I think we can debunk a couple of those 
really easy just right off the bat. Um, you know, again, I, I have been with the department for almost 10 years now. Uh, but, uh, and, and and before you before you go on to there, let's explain to our consumers, or to our listeners, the 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 theories that I have. I've always had. They have nothing to do with you being in the game department. You share my feelings, um, and then the listeners are going to get two perspectives. They're going to get your perspective as a conservation officer, and they're also going to get my perspective as a hunter. Um, Absolutely. Well, and and. Probably the key to all of this is that we knew each other before I became a game and fish officer, and we hunted with each other before I became an officer. And so, um, also on top of that, I want to I want to make very clear that uh, you know my opinions within this podcast are my opinions, and and I will not at any point uh, bring up anything that is. Um, out of, I guess, out of line with what the department, uh, the department is the department, and I'm not speaking for the department. Correct. I'm speaking for myself. Um, even though I do work for them, I have a little bit of insight into what goes on inside the department. So. Correct. And there were there were um, viewpoints that I had, like you said, when we were um, roommates and friends uh, before we were, you know, family, and and hunted together there are viewpoints that i had then that have changed because um but they they weren't changed because you're a conservation officer they were changed through education which is another thing that today's podcast is going to be about is about education educating yourself um helping educate others making yourself more aware and that's what builds your viewpoints good foundation build from the ground up and that's how that's how you get get to where you are. And I'm sure that some of the viewpoints that I have now will change in the future. Well, it all goes back to what we were talking about, our perspective and the way that we do things, is that we're trying to get a little bit better every time. every single time. Um, I was no saint, uh, as far, I guess. Nope. Uh, I was no saint uh, as far as hunting is concerned before I became a conservation officer. Um, I, I remember our one of our first elk hunts together. I tried like. Hell to get you to to shoot, to shoot an elk, elk over the fence across the fence on private property. Yeah, yeah. But uh, that being said, it, coming back to you, should always be trying to improve. Um, you know, your v- viewpoints change, and you should always always be striving to get better and, and uh, kind of broaden your mind, educate yourself. So, all right. So let's look at some of these conspiracy theories. Um, let, let's let's start out first off with. Um, the game and fish is out to get us. Yeah, man. the game and fish is out to get us. They, listen, as a whole, as as the general public, the game and fish cares about us. They care about conservation of the animals in this state because that's their livelihood. Um, so so they truly care about us as a group. But as an individual, they don't. They don't care about. Just an individual person. They care about the group as a whole. That includes non-residents, residents. They care about um, the animals. uh, And they do care about a person. 
but they don't care they don't care in this in the sense that I'm talking about is they don't care to keep your $36 or whatever it is to pay for a deer license now for an extra two weeks to gain interest they, they don't they well don't and care. I think and I think to clarify about that um, you know it's it's harsh to say we don't care about the individual we do care about the individual it's just we don't we don't hold a grudge against you you yeah, know well, and there's people who there's people yeah. who haven't drawn for you know 14 years and they think that the department's got them on a blacklist we exactly. don't have a blacklist exactly. we don't have you know we don't have any of that stuff there's a no. very precise way that the draw works and we'll go through a little bit little bit about about that right now to to help you understand that because again education is going to be key so um how does the draw work well um it's legislatively mandated new mexico department of game and fish a little bit of history on it is a public entity it is a department of the state of new mexico its viewpoint is that the wildlife of new mexico belongs to the people of new mexico and um our job is to conserve that wildlife, conservation meaning the wise use of natural resources. We are going to conserve, conserve that wildlife for future generations. We're going to use it wisely. And so we do that through the draw uh, to help manage those wildlife populations. And there are legislative mandates as far as the draw goes. 84% uh, of the draw pools go to New Mexico residents. I mean, that's overwhelming. It's a very good number. Um, and something that I actually just learned today, uh, that 84% goes to residents, 10% goes to hunters who have hired an outfitter. I used to think that that was non-residents who hired an outfitter. It's both. It's both. Yeah. It's residents and non-residents who have hired an outfitter. Again, that's a perfect example of getting better every day. I learned something new today going through the proclamation, getting ready for this podcast. Um, and that's a good thing. So it's 10% goes to non-residents and residents who have hired an outfitter. And 6% goes strictly to non-residents. That gives them an opportunity to come here. And they should have an opportunity to come here. Why? National forest land belongs to everybody. Good. So <laughs> that's probably one of the conspiracy theories is that you know, um, the non-residents are getting all the tags, right? Yeah. Um, it, it's not. I mean, you can see that overwhelmingly New Mexico residents are favored in this draw, and, and rightly so. It, it, it's our wildlife. But also think about the flip side. A lot of the New Mexico economy relies on out-of-state tourism, travel, hunting, etc. Sure, sure. And it's a good thing for them to come here. Um I, I wouldn't want to say they can't come here because I truly want to hunt in Idaho one day in Montana and Wyoming, and it would be unfair for me to do that and then tell them you can't come here. Yeah, you bet. You bet. So, um, Rodney, you're, you've done a really good job of educating yourself on kind of how the draw works. Talk about that real quick, you know, because um, there's some misconceptions about, you know, if your application gets pulled and something happens and you're automatically kicked out. So the draw is pretty easy here in New Mexico. Um, I've looked at some proclamations from other states and there's some other states out there that are really hard to figure out. New Mexico is pretty easy. 
uh, not just because I'm a lifelong resident and I've been doing it forever. Um, it, it truly is easy. Um, you can put in up to four people per application. Uh, you can choose up to three specific units with the fourth choice of a quarter of the state. Yep. Um, you put in, uh, if multiple people put in on one application, if one person is drawn, they're all drawn. Um, you put in your application, you turn it in, all the applications for the entire state go into a drawing. Uh, they pull one application randomly. The computer does it, pulls one application, and being the first application pulled, that person's first choice is where they're going to go. And then they move on to the second application, and they go down the line pulling applications and filling hunts. So once you get a little bit further down the line, let's say, um, you know, you're, you and me are on an application and it gets pulled and let's say our first hunt, um, the available draw, draw uh, licenses for that hunt are full. What then happens? We move down to the second choice. Okay. Again, like I said, we have three choices, four if we choose a, a non-specific unit. Um, so if your application is pulled later down the line, you may get your third choice. Uh, and that's not a bad thing, especially if you've structured it right. And in a future podcast, we'll talk about how to structure your application, how to read the drawing on reports and the harvest reports and stuff like that. And we'll get into that. But for today, if, if you're pulled on the third, if, if your first hunt is full and your second hunt is full, you may get your third choice. If you put a fourth choice, you may get your fourth choice. The fourth choice is... Uh, um, kind of a leftover system. So what happens if if they go through your first, second, and third choice and all those choices are full, then you are moved to a separate pool. Okay, so to clarify real quick, so some of the misconception of what actually happens is that they're pulling applications for a specific hunt and then once that hunt is done, they put everything back in the pool and they draw for... Another hunt. Yeah, that that's not happen. that does not that's yeah. not what happens. Good. You, you're you, everybody is put in one and they just start drawing applications and they draw applications until all hunts are filled. So that's how it goes. Um, that's why you can be drawn way down at the bottom and still get your first choice because that hunt just hasn't filled yet. Absolutely. Depending on drawing odds for that hunt or the number of um, permits that they're giving for that hunt. You know, some units like like uh, rifle hunts in unit 34, um, typically they give, you know, um, six, eight hundred, a thousand tags, uh, depending on the year. Um, and that hunt may take longer to fill up. If it's a quality hunt, say 2B, that's probably going to fill up pretty quick. Yeah. And so there's there's debate out there as to whether or not you have a greater chance of drawing if you put in by yourself versus if you put in with, uh, you know, a couple of guys. And, and we always put in with you and me and Dedon just because that's who we like to hunt with. Um, just anecdotally, I can tell you that uh, it seems like I draw more whenever I put in for somebody or put in with somebody. And understand that. Like you said at the first, if you've got several people on an application, 
one of those people gets pulled, everybody gets pulled, and they run through those hunts. Now, that being said, what happens if you get down and there's only, let's say, two tags left in that hunt, and you've got four people on an application? Okay. So every year, as you know, um, I do the research for our hunts. Yep. One of the main staples of the research that I use is the drawing odds report. Where do you find that? You can find that on the New Mexico Department of Game and Fish website. Actually, and the reason I bring that up is because most of this information, not most of it, all this information... It's public. It's public. It's public exactly. knowledge. Exactly. And it's just... Most it's of it's right on there. our website. It's right there at your fingertips. It's very easy to find. Uh, all the knowledge is there. You just, you just have to know where to go and get it. And that's why we're talking today. So, in my research, what I have noticed is, let's say a unit is offering a hunter tag limit mm -hmm. okay now let's say it gets down to where 99 tags of those 99 of those tags have been given away and there's one left if your hunt application has four people on it and it gets pulled and there's only one tag left you're not going to get that tag yeah very good likelihood you're not getting that tag but i have seen multiple hunts where there's a hundred tags available but they gave away 101. So what that says to me through research is that if there was two people on that application, you did get it. Yeah. So, but I've never seen where there was two tags. If there was 100 available, they gave away 102. Very rare. If there was 100 available, they gave away Most of the time, that flexibility yeah. is only within Correct. the one tag Correct. range. So there's some wiggle room. So. Yes, is there a remote chance that by putting in by yourself, you can draw that tag? Absolutely. Um, but I mean, that's a slim chance. Well, and the other thing to think about is do, do you have buddies that you go hunting with? And so, uh, you know, for us, we would all rather not draw a tag than not hunt together. Correct. Correct. And so there's a lot of people out there, and again, this is our perspective, so that's what we're going to give you is our perspective. There's a lot of people out there that hunt, and let's say there's four buddies that hunt. Mm -hmm. They'll all put in individually, and if two of them draw, all four of them are going to go. Yeah. You know? And that's, that's fine if that's how you want to do it. We aren't like that. We all like to put in on that same application. There's three of us, like you said. We all put in three of us. Through the research and the studying that I've done, we've been pretty successful at drawing tags. Pretty dang successful if you look at it. You know, um, I've talked to a lot of people who, they, I don't know how many people I've talked to, say, oh, I can't draw a tag, I can't draw a tag, and we're about at what? Um, I We draw deer tag every year. Um, I can only think of maybe one year we haven't. Uh, one time, um, but that was when we weren't putting in together. Only one time have I not drawn a deer tag. Yeah. Uh, and I was still able to get one through fire sale. Uh, it just it goes back to whether you're, you're, if you just want to hunt. Well, we're going getting to get yeah. into that in the next podcast. That's so. Absolutely. So, so uh, and as far as elk goes, we typically draw an elk tag at least once every three years. Yeah. Uh, at least. And I want to clarify, I've been doing that for much longer than um, Kyle was a game warden. So it has nothing to do with him being a game warden on why we draw tags. And I'm glad you touched on that because that was another kind of little conspiracy theory that I wanted to debunk. You know, I, I 
hear it almost on a weekly basis. My family. You know, did you draw anything? And, you know, people are surprised when I tell them, no, well, don't, don't you get a free tech? No, I'm, I have to put in and I have to draw just like everybody else, as does anybody in the department. We have no Correct. special privileges. Correct. If you had special privileges, we would have hunted 6B for elk a long time ago. A long time ago. Uh, we haven't drawn that tag and we've been trying. Um, we did manage to draw a fantastic tag last, last year. We drew a uh, 2B archery. Man. Uh, extremely not. fun hunt. Um, but, you know, no, you being a game warden does not uh, reflect on our drawing success. What reflects our drawing success is the studying and the hard work that yeah, I, I do. I give to put way, in. well, I, it, there's, no, there's no preference at all on, on, on my part. I give all props to Rodney because he sits down and he... He probably knows the draws and the harvest reports much better than I do just because, you know, I, I see them, but I don't get into them a whole lot. Man, he delves into them. He's a numbers guy. And, uh, man, I've been I've been uh, the beneficiary of that uh, because we hunt together, so it's really nice. But anybody can do it. Anybody can. So, Kyle, let's touch on another another subject here where does the department in game and fish if they're, if they're not holding our applications for interest uh where does the department of game and fish get their money from department of game and fish gets their money from hunting trapping and fishing license sales um another misconception that i hear quite often most of the time when i'm writing somebody's citation uh they'll say something to the effect of well i pay your salary you know i pay taxes the fact is, Department of Game and Fish takes absolutely no money out of the general fund, and so uh, income taxes have no effect on it. We sales are, taxes. Sales taxes, nothing like that goes to the Department of Game and Fish. In fact, uh, the fines from citations don't even go to the Game and Fish. That all goes back into the general fund. We make, we operate solely on hunting, trapping, and fishing licenses. Now we get a little bit of... Uh, Additional income from the from the feds through the Pittman Robertson Act and the Dingle Johnson Act, which, uh, if you didn't know, those are uh, acts that were put into place to uh, create an excise tax on certain types of sporting equipment, rifles and ammunition and bows and arrows and fishing and uh, equipment and things like that. But uh, that money then goes to the feds and they divvy it out to the states for habitat work. And so we get that type of money through grants and things like that. But for the most part, everything that we do is based off of hunting, trapping, fishing licenses. Excellent. Excellent. And one of the, I guess, the thing that Rodney was trying to touch on was there's been a, a conspiracy theory out there that because you have to pay up front, we're making our money off the interest that, that kind of your money sits in in our account until you until it's drawn or not drawn correct and and to address that if if you go back and do your research which I have done through past proclamations what you're going to find out is that we've went through cycles we've went through Many changes as it regards to how we pay for our licenses, how we apply for uh, these draw hunts. Um, well, shoot, you look all the way back, and I have a, the first 
New Mexico Wildlife Magazine um, volume ever put out in the 1950s, and the proclamation fit on one magazine page. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of changes. In 2004-2005 license year, that's the year that we went to the online draw. Right, and before that, it was... Before that, you had to mail in an application. It was a form. When you mailed in your application, guess what you had to do, Kyle? Guess what you had to do? You had to write a A check check or a money order. A money order and pay up front. For the full amount of whatever you were putting in for, right? Absolutely, the full amount. Um, In 2004 and 2005, that changed. They, They went to an online system to where you could apply for these hunts and pay online. So when you did that, you put in your credit card number or your debit card number, and they only charged you the application fee. They didn't $6. charge you up front. Yeah, six dollars, eight dollars, depending on the hunt. Whatever it was. And and you didn't pay for the license up front. You paid just the application fee, and then if you drew out, that's when they you... would charge your card. Yeah, if you remember back in in college when we first started hunting together. Man, you'd watch like a hawk, watch your... Uh, you'd watch your account. Your account. That's how you knew if you drew. You could find out a few days early that if you drew uh, a tag because before they released the results, they would hit your account. And if you saw that deduction, you knew that you drew a tag. You kind of had an idea. You didn't know where you were going, but you had an idea that you maybe yeah. had an elk or a deer tag yeah. based on however much was taken out. Exactly. You, you'd see a withdrawal come from the New Mexico Department of Game and Fish for a certain amount, so you would know if it was elk or deer or antelope or, or whatever. Um, but you wouldn't know if it was first, second, or third choice. So there was still some mystery there, but, but it was, you know, it was cool to see that money come out of your account. Yeah. Yeah. So throughout the years from 2004, all the way up to, um, basically 2010, 2010, there was, there were several variations of that. So, um, at one point. You had to pay up front for um, elk, but not deer. Yeah. Oh, and at one point it was oryx and javelina and that and that special drawing prior to. Correct. Yeah. So it went through several different iterations um, until 2011, when they said, you know, listen, it's just too much work. Um, one of the things that was happening, and I know had to be a factor into this, is people would apply for multiple hunts. They would apply for ibex and oryx and bighorn and little horn and fish and turkey and bear and everything else that they could think of. And then they would draw a bunch of stuff. Son did it. Your cousin did it. My cousin did it. And he would draw, he drew tags, and then the Department of Game and Fish went to hit his credit card, and guess what? No money in there. And then the department would have to send out a reminder. Exactly. Email, hey, put money in your account. I mean, call you on the phone, put some money in your account. Talk about losing man hours. Yeah. So, so it became a hassle. And, and so they're not, they're not after our money. They're not after our interest. They just want to make it easier for all parties involved and including themselves. You know, that's a lot of extra work to track down all those people that didn't have the money in their account. If you look at the number of people that applied last year, 700,000 people applied for a tag in the state of New Mexico. Yeah. it's a lot of people applying. A lot of you people. want to talk about why you can't draw a tag? That's why. Yeah. Because there's a lot of people applying for tags. 
So, which is good. Absolutely, because all of that is 700,000 times six. That's some good habitat money right there. You bet. So, so you look at that, and imagine if just 10% of that didn't have the money in their account. 10% of 700,000. Yeah. 70,000. 70,000 people that they have to track down and say, hey, put your money in your account. Yeah. Um, so, so... A lot of work. Uh, I don't blame them for going to the system that we have. There are states out there that have it the old way where you don't have to pay up front. Um, There are states out there that have our current system where you do have to pay up front. I don't mind paying up front. Um, One added benefit of paying up front is it increases our drawing odds. Well, and you and I are not ever going to be someone who says, I hope they don't put in or I hope somebody doesn't put in because I want to draw a tag in my mind, and I know in yours too, mm-hmm. understanding what we understand about where the Department of Game and Fish gets their operating money, competition is good. Mm-hmm. Man, it's really good because the more people we have putting in for tags and, and, and the more people we have drawing and paying for licenses and things like that, the more money we can put out there for habitat projects, which in turn creates more habitat for wildlife, those numbers are going to increase, and then we're going to get to put more tags out there. I mean, it's basically what happened with the bighorn sheep. We brought them back, created habitat, those numbers boomed, and man, now we're hunting bighorn sheep where we haven't hunted them in 100 100 years or so. Yeah, yeah. no, it's it's a good system. I mean, it, it is built to bring us wildlife. It's built to bring us opportunity. Um... And, and that's a good thing. So um, you're absolutely right. Facts are facts, though. Just like us, I, I would love to put in for oryx and bighorn and antelope and elk and deer and everything. But due to my budget, as we explained earlier, you know, we're working families. We can't afford to put in for everything. And there are a lot of other people out there like us. And so having said that, that reduces the number of people that are going to put in, which does increase everybody's odds yeah yeah so that's a part of it uh not all parts of it are going to be fantastic but it is a part of it and and it's the best system we got right now well you know and that's one thing to talk about just briefly as well is is it a perfect system i don't know it's pretty dang good system i tell you what i don't want i don't want to go to a point system Uh, i don't want to go to a system where if you draw you have to sit out I mean, having a chance to draw a tag every year is fantastic, and I, I would not want to trade that um, for some of the other systems that I see in states out there. Exactly. And, and one, one good thing about our system is it's on a cycle. Yeah. So every four years, we get to review it. Yeah. We get to look at it and see what can we do to make it better. And just like we talked about with our perspective and how we do things, every year we want to get a little bit better. So with our system that we have, every four years, we have that opportunity. We, the people, have the opportunity to voice our opinions, and then the department has the opportunity to review um, the, the data yep. and, and see if there was any unintended consequences See if there's something they can do better. You you can talk about that a little bit, Kyle. I can, yeah. So and understand that it's not all in the same four years, but basically it's a four year rule cycle on most all of our, uh, in fact, most 
all of our species that are that we hunt that are game species and all that um so we may uh for example they just made a proposal for antelope that has passed it will go into effect next year correct that will be our rule cycle and how we do the antelope system for the next four years and then after that we'll review it if they want to keep it in place the game commission at the time uh will decide whether or not they want to do something new or leave it the way it is and so um some of the stuff that goes into that however that you guys may not know is that this is this stuff's all looked at by our biologists we do um annual surveys and it may not be annual in in the same place every time uh but we do surveys for all of our major species and they're looking at uh for a deer example they're looking at uh buck to doe ratios um there's a couple of different types of hunts for deer you've got opportunity hunts which are the standard hunts most of the hunts across the state are opportunity hunts and we're trying to give people a good opportunity to go hunt a deer it's not you may not get a 200 class deer but you got a good chance to get a deer you get, or an you opportunity get the to, to draw go. to yeah. go you got the chance to go to go hunting and so with those hunts you know our biologists are looking for uh 15 bucks to per hundred uh doe ratio uh, and we figure that out through both the surveys that we do as well as the harvest data um, you look at quality hunts within deer they're looking for 30 bucks per hundred does um, in their survey data and so all those things are kind of taken into account gonna give you a couple of units here um, just to to give you a basis of information you know like unit 5a unit 37 probably unit 34 these are some units that would be uh, opportunity hunts your standard hunts in the proclamation uh, good deer numbers but you know 15 to 100 bucks uh, 15 bucks to 100 does so that's what um, they would consider a a opportunity hunt unit some of the opportunity or some of the quality hunt units that you're looking at is your 2b 2c 5b um, these are quality hunt units where you're gonna because there's a lot more bucks to dose the the size of the bucks is going to increase and you're looking at a quality hunt absolutely, um, absolutely. we just like and looking say, at a greater probability of getting an animal because the tags are usually less that are given out correct. and the of course a buck ratio is higher so there's more bucks out there on the landscape correct. and we saw that in 2b man we saw so we saw so many deer. So many deer. We didn't know what to do with ourselves. We, I mean, looked like a cat in a grain bin full of mice. Oh, Just man. didn't know which way to go. It, they, they were everywhere. It, it was it was so hard. You'd, you'd take 10 steps and see a buck and decide to go after it. And, and 10 steps in that buck's direction, you'd see another one and change course. And it was just crazy, the, the amount of deer. And good deer. Um, and that's what you want. That's what you want is... is the occasional opportunity to do that. We're not going to get the opportunity to do that every year. No. Um, that's why you have opportunity hunts and quality hunts. Yeah. And when you look at, um, you know, next to deer, you look at elk. Uh, they make those decisions based off uh, elk herd units. They have specific elk herds that they have defined in a geographical area that, that are, uh, they have a core 
basically that they have said this is core habitat for elk. This is where we would expect to find elk. This is where we want to manage for elk. And they have, you know, like in the Gila, you've got an elk herd unit. In the, um, over Mount Taylor, they've got an elk herd unit. In the Sacramento Mountains, they've got a north and a south elk herd unit. And so within those, they're looking at the bull to cow to calf ratios. And, you know, if, if you've got, um, if you've got a high bull to cow ratio, obviously you're probably going to be putting more bull tags out there because we can hunt them and reasonably expect not to affect the population. Correct. Whereas if you get a low calf ratio, that means we're not getting, you know, if you get something below, let's say 30 calves per 100 cows, that's a very poor recruitment of calves. We're not having the calves mature. They're getting killed or they're dying off or whatever. And so in that unit, we're probably going to look at uh, either some, probably two kinds of things, some predation um, issues and trying to do some predation management as well as reducing cow tags or antlerless tags in that unit because we're not getting the recruitment that we need to maintain that population. And so those biological um, influencers are mainly where these rules are uh, determined. Uh, that being said, occasionally you have socioeconomic issues that might uh, influence some of those rules. Um, and by that, I mean you look at an area that has a high uh, population of an elk herd and in the same area you have a large amount of agricultural, uh, commercial agricultural um, properties, you might have some socioeconomic stuff because those elk are definitely going to have a, an impact on those agricultural fields. Thus, you may have uh, outside of the biological data some influences as to how many tags are going to be out there, et cetera, et cetera. So that probably ties into a little bit of private property hunts, right, Kyle? It does. And and that's going to touch on another one of our, uh, my uh, pet peeves about hunting complainers, um, which is non-residents taking all of our tags. Well, it's obviously not true if you look at how many, what percentage the res of the tags, well, this is draw tags, that the residents get, 84%. I mean, Correct. ridiculous amount. Correct. So that's, and that's where the myth comes comes in at. So my home unit of 34, uh, one of the things that I hear a lot is people say, well, all them Texans are up there hunting all our elk. And they're not completely wrong. Explain. So what happens here is... 84% of the mature bull tags go to New Mexico residents on public land. Draw tags, right? Draw tags. Yeah. Also, 100% of cow tags go to New Mexico residents. Absolutely. Um, but on private land, this is not the case. On private land, you'll have a ranch that is allocated a certain number of tags Right. Uh, and they're not actually a allocated the tag. They're just the, the rights to hunt that. Well, they're basically 
um, and and before we get too much into the non-residents, kind of let me explain that a little bit, is that, uh, you know, in Texas, the wildlife are property, most of the wildlife are property of the landowner. Correct. And we just don't want that to be the case in New, here in New Mexico. The wildlife belong to the people of New Mexico. Um, so we try and do things where Joe Blow in Albuquerque has just as much a, of a chance to hunt an elk as a private landowner does. That being said, if you think about the land mass of New Mexico, we have a bunch of public land. It's good. It's great. We like public land. However, we also have a bunch of private land. And in many cases, especially in big ranches, those private landowners are providing wildlife a benefit, whether intentionally or not intentionally, um, they're providing key habitat for that wildlife. Um, and so, kind of as a recognition of that, uh, it's been determined by the department during a rule cycle that, hey, we're going to go ahead and, um, I, don't, I don't want to say reward that, but we're going to recognize that contribution to wildlife by giving them authorizations to hunt on that private property. Those authorizations then can be given away, can be used, can be sold Correct. to whoever to be used on that deeded private property. And so that's kind of where we're at with those private land tags. And obviously, they're probably going to sell them to whoever they can if they're trying to make profit. That's going to be Texans. It's going to be out-of-staters, you know, wherever they come from. So... That's where that misconception comes that from. That is exactly where it comes from. And typically those tags are sold anywhere from two thousand to ten thousand dollars, depending on the quality of the ranch. A lot of those species. a lot of those tags go to non residents. They do. Um, and that's where that misconception is. So on public lands, public draw hunts, we get eighty four percent of all the antlered animals out there. Um, and on private land you know, nature of the beast. Nature of the beast. A lot of it goes to highest bidder. Yeah. Yeah. So, and so, uh, additionally to that, you know, the department, we don't want to get anywhere near the, uh, the idea that the wildlife is private property. And so there've been some changes that have been made. And again, it depends on the rule cycle, depends on Who's making the rules? It depends on the game commission at the time, the director at the time, the public how input, loud, how, how loud, loud the voices of the people. Exactly, are. and so that can all change. But you know, right now I can tell you the the feeling, most of the feeling that is going on is that we want the public to have as much of a chance as possible. Um, good example: the antelope system just went to kind of almost like deer. I think there's a few differences in there but basically so that we're not giving them authorizations all that they can sell is trespass rights correct correct so that that pretty much wraps that up um the biggest thing that you can do from this point um is go educate yourself get on the department of game and fish website Learn the, the website, learn the resources that they provide, get into the proclamation, um, get into the rule books, 
get into the state law, uh, write your senators, write your congressmen, uh, go to the meetings. You know, they have these public meetings, go to these meetings. You, you can make your voice be heard. But if you're gonna make your voice be heard, make sure it's an educated voice. Make sure that you are, are backing up your opinion with a little bit of fact. You know, uh, your opinion matters, but it's gotta carry weight, you know. Well, yeah, uh, <laughs> so, for example, you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna voice an opinion on, let's say, a rule cycle, and whether or not we should be issuing more or less tags or whatever, don't don't bring an opinion that that's not educated. You know, one I heard recently was uh, you should make mature bull hunters kill a cow first in order to let the bulls mature. Well, biologically, that makes no sense. Why would you do that? Why not just kill cows? Correct. Yeah, and you don't have to. You don't have to go get a college education for this. Just you know, just go to the website and, and don't don't even listen to us. Just just go out there and do your own research and come from yourself. You know, just because you don't see the same three deer that you usually see driving down the road doesn't mean the deer numbers have plummeted. You know. No, um, and. Rodney said it perfectly. Don't don't rely on what we're telling you. Don't rely on what other entities are telling you because there are too many entities out there that have their own agenda. Uh, they're trying to do their own thing, and so um, do your own research. It's all out there. It's it's public information, and if it's not uh, on our website, which most of this is very readily accessible on our website, um, you can get it. Uh, because we're a public agency, we are subject to the uh, Information Public Records Act, IPRA. Uh, you can request any information that you want, and we have to provide it as a public entity. Uh, you can do. You basically have to do it through writing, whether it's email or uh, letter or whatever. And you, there's on the website, uh, we have the information on how to do that. But most of this stuff is just right there on the website for anybody to look at. So absolutely educate yourself. And another big reason of why, to ed why you need to educate yourself is because hunting is under, under attack. Um, you know, if you want to keep doing what you're doing, if you want your kids to do what you do, we need to be educated and be able to refute the attacks that are coming from um, anti-hunting. Most people out there are neither, you know, pro-hunting nor anti-hunting. They're just kind of there. But if you come at them uneducated, you could push them the other way. Um, we're we need to bring our numbers up, um, and part of that is we need to educate people. And there's nothing more uh, beneficial, well, beneficial or detrimental than a hunter who has educated himself or a hunter who is ignorant and is just spouting opinions. Correct. So you said something, we need to increase our numbers. What's one thing that somebody can do, Kyle, to help increase our numbers? Take somebody who has not hunted who may be interested hunting out 
to go hunting. Exactly. Your kids, if you're a hunter, your kids are going to be hunters. Probably. Take somebody new. Get somebody new out there. Get a whole new family started in, in, in this. Don't worry about whether or not it's going to increase hunting pressure because there's not going to be any hunting pressure because we won't be able to hunt if our numbers continue to go down. Absolutely. And there's a big push right now across the nation. It's called R3, and we've just hired a new coordinator for it. And it's uh, uh, retention, um, it's recruitment, retention, and reactivation, the R3 program. And, you know, for a long time, and we still do, we have tried to get into the schools and and tried to get to the kids but the fact is that's gonna well I won't say the fact is in my opinion that's gonna do minimal um, minimal gains in us trying to get people in we're we're doing about what we can to recruit kids into the program in my opinion and and I know we had a discussion about this, and, and I think I kind of changed your mind on it. Absolutely. In my opinion, one of the areas that we're lacking is young adults, meaning college-age kids, to 30 years old, 35 years old. Those are the people who influence the kids. Like Rodney said, if you hunt, most of the time your kids are going to hunt. And so if we're looking to boost our numbers... We have a lot of hunters who are in that 45 to 60 year old range. They're going to die out. We don't, we have a huge gap within that, you know, 25 to 35 or even 40 year old range. That's where we need to focus. And um, we have the benefit right now of some social uh, pressures of people wanting to know where their food comes from. There's a whole group out there who are did not grow up hunters but are interested in hunting because it is organic. It is uh you know it is something that they know there's no preservatives in the meat, blah blah blah. Exactly. So, exactly. So take somebody hunt. Take a friend. Um you don't have to start with deer, take them quail hunting. You know, go turkey hunting. You don't need to draw for that, and it'll get them started. That's about all we have for today's subjects. Uh, what do we got coming up, Kyle? So our next podcast, we're, we're going to get into playing the odds. Like I said, Rodney was is a numbers man. He has been really fantastic, at, uh, and we've been really fortunate to draw what we've drawn, but that's because we play the odds, you know. And we're going to get into that a little bit further down the line. We've drawn some hunts this year, and we want to take you along with us. Uh, seems like in all those pro hunting shows and all of that stuff, you get a little snippet of the hunt. But what goes into it? And again, this goes back to kind of our perspective and what we're hoping to bring to the table through these podcasts and videos. Um, if you are just trying to get into hunting, there's very little to actually guide you on. Exactly. And we want to do that. We want to give you a step-by-step. The gear, how do we prepare, um, how do we do it out in the field, how do we set up a camp, all that stuff. Exactly. And we're going to take you through uh, a couple of hunts that we did draw this year, and we're going to take you with us on that journey from start to finish. It's not going to be just when you see us out there in the field and making the kill. We're going to take you through the whole thing, and we hope that you'll stick with us. Thanks. We'll see you next time. All right. Thanks. Adios.